0: Hello, and welcome to the arbitration station.
1: Is that the main issue of ISDS today?
2: So we cannot invite Joel to the next episode. You're the native speaker.
0: It can't be very unique. Unique means one of a kind. It's either unique or it's not. It's like you're, you're either pregnant or you're not. <laughs>
1: Did you say Gayard?
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. With a D. I should not pronounce the D.
2: I'm getting DCF tattooed on my neck tomorrow, actually. <laughs>
1: it's a question I'm putting
2: up
0: there.
1: <laughs>
2: Hello, and welcome to The Arbitration Station. My name is Brian Kotick. I'm Joel Dahlquist.
1: And I'm Sadia Patti.
2: So excited. And we are your co-hosts for another episode of The Arbitration Station podcast, covering both commercial and investment arbitration, 66% serious substance and 33% general pondings and musings of the arbitration world, and 1% light through the crack of the door. I feel like we're, we're branching out now, you guys. We're going places, we're meeting people. We're going to live conferences. It is the 1% opening in the door to freedom.
1: And cases are getting higher in the UK. <laughs> cases.
2: And it'll close right or back increasing. down in <laughs> two seconds. <laughs> oh, no. Where in the world are you, Sadia?
1: Well, I'm in the UK. Uh, I'm, uh, I, I'm recording still from home, I'm still doing half work from home and working from the office. So, yeah, where about you? What about
3: you?
2: I am in London as well, in the south side. Uh, well, north side of London, south of you, um, also still working from home. But I am going in to, to St. Paul's twice a week uh, to get that office vibe. But I have to say, I, ha- you know, I do like the luxuries of the kitchen around the corner, <laughs> bringing a Tupperware and the microwave and the utensil. It's just not a lot. Okay, Joel, yeah. where are you in this world?
0: I am also in London at home today. Uh, I actually have a hearing this week, but it is fortunately for the arbitration station. It is running uh, on basically, I guess, uh, afternoons, evenings, London time. So I have my mornings open all week and I've been going into the office, but I think now I will do the rest of the hearing from home where my internet is finally strong enough. Good. (laughs) It's a village. (laughs) It does. Speaking of village... No, that was a terrible segue. Uh, you live in Cambridge, Sadia, but you have also been in Paris, which I want to hear about. That was the, the village. <laughs> speaking connection.
1: of village, speaking of village, <laughs> yes, I have. I, I've actually started going back to Paris for meetings. I used to go regularly much more before COVID, and it started again now. Um, but I have to confess, it's not easy. So I got to the train station, my own fault, forgot my passport. That was number thing. Number one thing mm-hmm. that you should not do because you cannot travel. So I have only, I only have a French passport. You can't travel on an ID card anymore. Right? So that's the thing. So COVID, Brexit, storms, all of this oh related, my
3: It's
1: just not uh, as it used to be. I have to confess. It's not as easy to travel. We're,
0: we're all a little um. rusty, I think.
1: Also, I think that people are not, I mean, I definitely am not used to the traveling. I think people are starting to travel. It's tiring, isn't it? Like, we just spend all the whole day in front of a computer and then all of a sudden you have to talk to people, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, go to the train station. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Look good. Um go for meetings so you have to work you know um
3: it's yeah
0: i think i'm the only one of us who has yet to go to a conference meeting uh, or something professional in person i have not put on a suit or anything resembling a suit to interact with fellow human beings since the pandemic started but i will i think there's (laughs) a arnold and porter in the lauglepakt center in london here in a couple of weeks they have an event on uh, Biden, uh, the Biden administration and international law at Arnold and Porter. And that will be my my premiere back into the world. But I've heard from both of you that that it is exhausting the first couple of times you have to actually talk to other people in person. But I I do look forward to it. I'm sure I'll be exhausted afterwards.
2: (laughs) You'll be interested to see who wears full formal attire and who's still cutting corners of like wearing trainers or no tie or... It's uh, everyone's still a bit <laughs> reticent to put on the full garb, but I just, I've realized how, how inefficient, you know, I, I mean, obviously there's inefficiencies from being from home, there's deliveries and all this stuff, but just, you know, going to so many in-person meetings and going to all these conferences, it took chunks out of your day just to get to someplace.
3: Yeah.
2: Um, and it, you know, I even just going in, I'm like, that was so inefficient. I've just spent two hours commuting And it's, you know, it didn't need to happen. Plus the time putting on my suit, like it's a lot.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, you have to choose your meetings more efficiently. I think that's that's the rule. So now Mm -hmm. when you do meet someone, it has to like really matter. And also one thing that I did that I think a lot of people are doing um, is packing your days when you do go physically to the office, is packing your day with meetings. I would also advise against that because you end up being completely exhausted <laughs> by the end of the day. And that's all you do. And it's not, you know, you can't just spend your entire day, like just coffee, 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 meeting, meeting, meeting. It's just not, it's insane. You can't, you know, it's not, um, you
0: can't go seven. from zero to a hundred. Yeah. Exactly. Um, one exactly.
3: second.
1: Yeah. Even though you can, I think it's possible to draft all day and to just lock yourself up and just concentrate, but the opposite, I think is. Anyways. So that's my uh, two uh, cents. We,
0: we, 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 guys, we've just published the first episode and I was listening to it and I realized I'm very absent from it, which is my own fault and you guys were kind of carrying the load. It was a Brian interview and then segments where I was just being the the odd one out trying to, to chirp in. But I think today it will be way more of the Joel show when we add up. The, the segments I'm reclaiming my my rightful place in the arbitration station. I am reclaiming Dynamic. my time.
3: <laughs>
1: the coming back, return of the jewel.
3: There we
1: go. Return of the jewel. Yeah, we'll ask to put the Mark Morrison song for you. Yeah.
0: <laughs> because we're, we're starting with an interview with uh, Veronica Corom that all three of us no, I think you both know her better than I do, but it's also on a, on a subject that I am, am a little extra interested in. What's, what's your guys' connection to, to Veronica?
2: I co-counseled with her <laughs> back when she was at Sherman and Sterling. So I had a very intimate setting for many months, slaving away.
1: Uh, I met her through EFILA, a, a European uh, Federation of Investment Law and Arbitration we're both members uh, I think of the advisory board and so we shared panels together on this discussion of the post-ACMEA and it started I think the first time I met her was 2018 yeah so ever since, just been checking in every six months or so. What's <laughs> been going
3: on?
0: <laughs> <laughs> she is, for those of you who don't know her, uh, a Hungarian lawyer, but like like the ideal arbitration lawyer that she is, she is qualified all over the place and she's based in Paris where she is the oh, a founding partner uh, at Caritius, Caritius, oh, yeah. I'll let you, you for yourself. Approval. <laughs> <laughs> She's also, she has a doctorate, she's an assistant professor in international business law and arbitration at ESSEC Business School in Paris, and she, like, straddles this academic slash practitioner divide that so many of us, or at least me, (laughs) at some point would like to be able to do. She does that successfully, and she is very good with EU law. So we're talking to her about a recent European Court of Justice decision that Uh, came out of a question from the Paris Court of Appeal in a long-running arbitration between Comstroy and the Republic of Moldova. And I think it is a very, very interesting interview, but we'll have reason to return to that, obviously. And then for the second segment, we are finally doing some hardcore procedural stuff again. Enough of this substantive law (laughs) now we're doing arbitration, like pure and simple procedural stuff, because I will be talking about post-award remedies that are not set aside or enforcement. So all the other things that can happen to an award after it has been rendered, but like the more obscure things that aren't set aside in enforcement, which we obviously talk about a lot. And then it's happy fun time, which I initiated and have not researched. So it will be very happy and fun. <laughs>
2: <It's> <laughs> Can't because wait. you're
1: going to quote yourself. That's why, right?
2: That's why you don't need to research <laughs> or do any work if you yeah. just quote yourself.
0: Exactly. the The uh, origin and the well, the idea is is that I think there was an ultimate thread on self citation. When in arbitration, academically and in practice, are you allowed to expected to? may you contemplate to uh, quote yourself things you've written or said in different contexts. And this, of course, applies to arbitrators, to counsel, to academics. And we'll, we'll see if we can get some sort of structure to that happy fun time. I think it's an interesting topic.
2: Great. Look, I'm really looking forward to your uh, substantive or procedural segment because I'm doing a litigation for the first time in since I've ever been a lawyer. And it's so rules heavy. And it's quite... Ooh, um, rules. It's right comforting just to... <laughs> rely on a rule and they're self-explanatory and you just have to make applications based on the rules. It's it's nice. So let's see what you got to say. Right, let's go.
0: So, Veronica, we thought we would have someone explain what we cannot explain ourselves, which is a recent judgment from uh, the European Court of justice in a case that I know as Energo Alliance, but I think we should at this point refer to as Comstroy, because mm-hmm. that's the way I've seen it around. That not to give away, like the spoiler alert, the Court of Justice said that the Energy Charter Treaty does not allow for arbitration in intra-EU relationships, but we are not really sure how and <laughs> and, and why. But do you mind just briefly explaining for those of us who haven't read and don't have the same specialist competence that you do, why we're here? What, what's, what's the background so that we understand why we don't understand it?
4: Um, great. Thanks, a lot, And thank you so much for having me. Um, I'm such a fan of your show. So it's exciting to be discussing this confusing judgment um, with, the, uh, with the three of you. Um, and... Um, I can tell you how we ended up here, but why I'm not entirely sure, um, to, 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 to be honest. So um, I think as everyone knows this is um, um, at the, um, you know, at the start we had a Uncetral Arbitral Award that was rendered in a dispute between the Ukrainian entity and Moldova. Um, it concerned um, basically the sale and purchase of electricity under various contracts that were not paid. By a state-owned um, electricity company in Moldova, um, Moldtranselectro, um, and um, you know, without going into too much detail, um, there were various interventions by the uh, courts and the prosecutor general and the audit chamber and and whatever other instances in Moldova um, that rendered it impossible for the Ukrainian um, side to enforce the. Um, Um, 20, 22 million US dollars um, worth of um, electricity that had been delivered but not paid. And so this went to um, um, the UNCTRL arbitration under the BIT between Moldova and Ukraine um, and also under the Energy Charter Treaty um, where the um, investor said, well, or the claimant said, Moldova basically um, is, is liable to pay for the debt of more trans-electro um, because it's a state-owned company and because the um, um, state instances intervened in rendering the um, enforcement of my claims against more trans-electro basically impossible. Um, and so the arbitral Tribunal um, in, a, in a decision, in an award, decided that it didn't have jurisdiction under the BIT, but that it had jurisdiction under the Energy Charter Treaty um, and could, um, Award compensation for the non-payment of some of the contracts that were um, in question, so not all of it. And um, it ended up with um, awarding um, 15 million US dollars around um, to the um, to the claimant entity. Um, but interestingly, perhaps um, at this stage, it's worth mentioning that there was a discussion between mm-hmm. um, the members of the arbitral tribunal um, whether or not the, the the contract and the claim under the contract. Um, actually, constituted an investment. Um, so, I said that under the BIT, the tribunal found that it didn't constitute an investment. Therefore, there was no um, jurisdiction, or the tribunal didn't have jurisdiction under the BIT um, to hear um, the claimants' claims. Um, under the Energy Charter Treaty, the majority of the tribunal found um, that the um, contracts and the non payment of the contracts um, or the claims under the contracts constituted an investment. The, um, the president of the tribunal right. did. Um, so, so, you know, the, the, the problem was already in the room, so that the question whether or not um, claims under a contract um, that were actually assigned, I mean, it was an entire group, like the claimant entity was it was a group where the um, um, sale of the electricity and then the payment for that electricity transitioned to various entities, one of which was an SPV um, um, incorporated in the BVI. Um, but suffice it to say that there was an award, it was a majority award, We found that there was um, jurisdiction um, for some of the claims under some of the contracts um, um, by virtue of the Energy Charter Treaty, um, and, um, and there was an award for um, around 15 million um, U.S. dollars. Um, the um, seat of the arbitral tribunal, so up until now, um, we are in a dispute under the Energy Charter Treaty between a Ukrainian um, entity and Moldova. Um, it so happened that the seat of the tribunal um, was in Paris, France. So the, um, um, the losing side, Moldova, applied to the uh, Paris Court of Appeal to have the award set aside um, in 2013 when the award came out. Um, the um, Paris Court of Appeal um, in the first round did um, set aside the um, arbitral award um, because it also found that there was no investment um, in the um, sense of the Energy Charter Treaty um, and, um, and, and therefore the tribunal wasn't competent to hear the claimant's claim. Um, the um, annulling decision of the uh, Paris Court of Appeal then went up to the um, Supreme Court of France, um, which set aside the Court of Appeal's decision, setting aside the arbitral award, so, you know, they reinstated the award, Um, Finding that the Paris Court of Appeal in interpreting um, the um, um, investment definition under the Energy Charter Treaty read certain requirements into that definition that the definition did not contain um, and therefore overstepped um, its powers. And um, so the Supreme Court of France sent back the question to the Paris Court of Appeal, um, differently constituted. And so it's now in the second round um, that the Paris Court of Appeal, again, heard argument from the parties on whether or not the tribunal had jurisdiction because the um, investment did or did not constitute an investment or rather the contractual claims constituted or didn't constitute an investment in the um, sense of the Energy Charter Treaty. And so here um, is where um, the story got strange and interesting at the same time. I understand that Moldova um, argued that the uh, Paris Court of Appeal should seek help from the Court of Justice of the European Union and should refer a a question to Luxembourg on the interpretation of the Energy Charter Treaty and in particular its um, investment definition, which is what the Paris Court of Appeal ended up doing. Um, and then um, seized of that, or the Court of Justice seized that opportunity to, um, well, answer to some extent um, the question, the question referred to it by the Paris Court of Appeal. But um, more importantly, or at least for for, for our purposes today, um, it 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 just went to great lengths to. Um, Um, to talk about something um, in this case that has nothing to do with this case, which is the intra-EU application um, of the Energy Charter Treaty. Um, And so it's not entirely clear whether it's an obiter or what exactly the court did, but but really I think the takeaway that everybody remembers is the court of justice used this case, this case between the Ukrainian entity and Moldova. Um, to make a finding on the intra-EU applicability of the um, energy charter treaty.
0: I think think that's a good starting point for for a little deeper analysis. We we have two questions, basically, that you've advertised. One is the one that was actually asked to the court about the scope of investment in in the ECT. The other is the one, the takeaway, which is the answer to a question that wasn't really asked, which is the general applicability of the ECT. But if we start at why... Is this even before the the Court of Justice? You've already advertised that neither of the parties is is an EU entity, um, state or company. Why is it that the the ECJ even has the jurisdiction or the competence to deal with this case in the first place?
4: Um, Okay, so many would say it doesn't have any competence. I think the really interesting question is why um, Moldova um, asked the uh, Paris Court of Appeal to make a reference for a preliminary ruling, and why the uh, Paris Court of Appeal agreed that it needed um, a preliminary ruling from the Court of Justice on the um, Energy Charter Treaty, um, that I can't answer. Uh, I'd be really curious to, um, to, to know it myself, and perhaps you guys um, know more in that respect. I'd, I'd be curious to hear, um, especially given that I think it was to be expected that the uh, Court of Justice could hijack this proceeding um, to you know, make declarations that it's been waiting to make for, for way too long. And I'm not sure it's great for Paris as a seat of, or as a place of arbitration to, to be the one to, to put this question or to give the occasion and the opportunity to the court of justice to, to do what it did. Um, especially if we look at Sweden and the um, Svea court of appeal that um, rejected many, many, many um, requests for preliminary rulings on the intra-EU applicability of the Energy Charter Treaty in disputes that opposed an EU investor and an EU member state.
1: Um, Veronica, do you... oh sorry, sorry for... just just a quick question, do you know, and and that's really a a question because I I don't, uh, if there were any submissions made by the European Commission, and I mean of course there were, like we said, there's no European, it's not an intra-EU dispute, Mm -hmm. but was there pressure or...
4: You know, submission in Paris submission? before the Paris Court of Appeal or even before the European Court of Justice. Yeah. So uh, before the Paris Court of Appeal, frankly, I don't know. Um, it's not obvious from the uh, judgment of the um, Court of Appeal, um, the judgment that decides that it will be sending a um, um, request for preliminary ruling to Luxembourg. Um, from that judgment, I only read that it was actually Moldova who had that idea, which may have been good because um, you know, it was to be expected that the Court of Justice, even if you just focus on the dispute between um, Comstroy and Moldova, um, that the Court of Justice, if it agreed to interpret the Energy Charter Treaty, would would have a restrictive interpretation um, of, um, of the um, investment definition and therefore somehow help Moldova to get rid of this award. Um, but so, um, I don't know and I don't think the uh, European Commission intervened in the uh, Paris proceedings. Um, But when the uh, case came to the Court of Justice, um, then, yes, of course, the Commission jumped on the occasion um, to to ask the court to um, um, discuss um, all the relevant to the matter at hand, but also discuss the intra-EU applicability of the Energy Charter Treaty. Um, And and so did many other member states. um, So there were only a few. It was the council who had signed the Energy Charter Treaty on behalf of the EU, Um, Finland, Sweden, and Hungary, who said, well, this is a question for another day, Um, and the um, Court of Justice doesn't um, actually even have um, jurisdiction to answer the questions that were put to it by the the Paris Court of Appeal. But so I understand that it was really in the proceedings before the Court of Justice that, um, led by the Commission, a number of member states pushed the Court and its Advocate General to also address this entry EU um,
0: um, method. Would it be fair to say that the the court ultimately ag- agreed to this and found that it had jurisdiction because the ECT this somehow is an EU law instrument or is part of the EU law acquis, e- even if there's a, even if the parties themselves are not EU entities?
4: Um, Yes, I think you're right. So, so the court did um, say that by, the simple, by virtue of the simple fact that the um, um, EU is a signatory to the Energy Charter Treaty, the treaty itself is EU law um, and, um, and it can be interpreted by um, the Court of Justice. Um, but I think there's a difference between accepting jurisdiction to interpret the Energy Charter Treaty as an instrument of EU law or as an act of an EU institution, which which, which was the um the, the hook because um it was the um, council who had signed the um, um, treaty on behalf of the European Union. Um, but it's a separate thing, I think, at least for me, to then go full in and um, and discuss issues that were not put to the court. Um, by the referring um, Court of Appeal in Paris. And frankly, um, I have thought about it um, quite a bit, why exactly the court gave into the pressure and thought that it was a good idea to use Comstroy to make statements on the intra-EU applicability of the Energy Charter Treaty, um, right? So we have a case that's not an intra-EU case. Um, the court recognizes it and has big difficulty, at least in my humble opinion, Justifying why it's talking about the intra EU applicability of the Energy Charter Treaty in this case. But so it does do that rather than wait for actually two other cases that are also currently before the Court of Justice. Um, one that is actually spot on an intra EU um, dispute, one involving Italy, Atena Investments. Um, I understand that's a referral from February of this year um, from the uh, Svea Court of Appeal. So after several attempts in cases against Spain um, to, to have a question referred to the court on the applicability um, within the EU of the Energy Charter Treaty, but it, it happened this year. And yes, it will come to a judgment later, but you know, that is a spot on the EU dispute with the actual question put to the court whether or not the intra-EU applicability of the ECT is compatible with EU law.
0: What um, is your where is your speculation? Your humble speculation. Why did they answer this now when it wasn't really properly teed up even if it, it is teed up in the not too distant future?
4: Um I think um Frank I think it was a matter of time so the the question of the intra-EU applicability of the Energy Charter Treaty has been with us for maybe 10 years um, or a little bit less, but it, it's been around for quite some time. Um, if you remember, it started with electrabile against Hungary, IOS against Hungary, in which cases, by the way, I have to say, Hungary never questioned um, the Arbitral Tribunal's jurisdiction because of the um, alleged incompatibility of the um, intra eu application of the treaty with EU law. Um, but only on different grounds, it was each time the commission that, um, that uh, pushed these arguments forward. But so the problem has been out there for quite some time um, and, there are the, and the number of intra-EU um, investment disputes under the Energy Charter Treaty um, simply doesn't seem to slow down. Um, so perhaps that there was a time issue, um, right? Already in 2021, I think there were like five intra-EU cases um, brought only before exit, I haven't counted the others um, between any by an EU investor against an EU member state. Um, altogether, I think we are close to 80 intra-EU um, cases on the basis of the Energy Charter Treaty in the past um, 10 or something years, um, which is which is more than half of all um, ECT cases to date. And so I think there was a fear to say, well, if we take another two years um, to issue um, a, a judgment in. Maybe this Athena you know, Investments case. Um, well, then there might be another ten or however many um, intra-UeCT disputes that are filed in the meantime, um, and we are losing time. And don't don't forget that the simple fact of having a judgment for, from the Court of Justice is um, is clearly not enough to stop intra-UeCT arbitration. I mean, we've seen this with Achmea, um, and I think. But but I think that this judgment is um, the starting point for the Commission. To be able to seriously put pressure on member states to agree a, a disconnection agreement um, or, or some alteration agreement to the ECT which would disconnect it um, in the intra-EU sphere and then if certain member states don't agree like some didn't sign the intra-EU termination treaty um, then the commission would, would, would have more legitimacy to bring um, you know, um, infringement proceedings against them. So I think um, the, um, the idea was that um, time was of essence um, and um, some sort of legitimacy or, or legal basis was needed um, for the commission to be able to, um, you know, step up, um, strengthen its game and, um, and, um, and arrive at a solution, just like for intra-EU um to put an end to the um, intra-EU application of the energy charter treaty. Um, But honestly, I think it it really renders Comstroy very weak and it renders um, like the entire discussion on the entry applicability of the ECT much weaker um, because these findings were made in an incredibly strange way um, in a case where they really don't belong. And I think the court pretty much admits that.
0: That's a helpful way to look at it, though, because from the reactions I've seen in in the arbitration world, the, the standard response has been, so what? We have another case here. It's not going to make any difference in the pending cases. It's not going to make any difference in future cases because arbitral tribunals will not take this to be some sort of pronouncement on the ECT in in the international law sense. But it's actually helpful, I think, uh, to look at it the way you say it, that it's within the context of the wider EU law discussion and, and what the commission can and can't do, what the member states can and can't do, And I guess ultimately what's going to happen to the ECT, it's almost a policy question rather than it is what's going to happen in any current arbitration question. Yeah.
4: Yeah, no, um, as as you say, I mean, I fully agree that it's not going to make much of a difference in any pending arbitrations um, and arguably it will make even less of a difference than Achmea did in um, intra-EU-BIT arbitrations because, um, so there's this discussion around whether or not um, the applicability of EU law or the application of EU law by arbitral tribunals matters or doesn't. Um, in Ahrmea, that was kind of the hook, the potential for an arbitral tribunal to um, interpret and apply EU law, either as an instrument of international law, um, via the treaties themselves, or as an instrument of domestic law, um, you know, um, in EU law incorporated into the national laws of member states. Um, which so, so there is that, but um, under the um energy charter treaty, and I, I think we have sort of a consistent case law with only a few exceptions, namely Electrabel, one of the first cases, um, that says that EU law is, is not part of the applicable law um in an intra-eu ECT arbitration, because the um applicable law provision of the um, um of the ECT makes it clear that it's the ECT. Um, And then, um, you know, um, rules and and, um, principles of international law that apply um, and the um, arbitral tribunals have been consistent um, since Electrable at least in finding that um, there's um, other rules of international law that are applicable cannot be um, the EU treaties because those rules have to be applicable to all of the signatories of the ECT um, to be considered um, applicable international law um, for an ECT tribunal. And given that EU law is not applicable to all of the ECT um, signatories, because not all of the um, ECT signatories are signatories to the EU treaties, um, well it's not an applicable provision or it's not part of the applicable law for intra-EU ECT tribunals um, either. Um, so, so, so therefore I think um, there are good arguments in a uh, pending arbitration proceeding or even in future intra-EU-ECT um, arbitration proceedings to say, well, Comstroy is, is is nice um, to have, and we can discuss it, but ultimately it's entirely irrelevant um, to the wow. um, jurisdiction of the arbitral tribunal um, on the basis of the ECT. Um, to me, and, and perhaps, you know, if we speak again in a year or two years' time, we'll see how um, the events um, have unfolded or will have unfolded. But um, again, just... Um, judging by what happened um, with ahmea and in the aftermath of Achmea, um, I think one can kind of try to guess what could happen here. Um, so ahmea wasn't enough to stop. It wasn't even enough to discourage um, European investors from bringing intra-UBIT claims, right? Because there were a number of um, intra-UBIT claims registered even after Achmea. Um, But that really was kind of the, um, the starting point where the... Um, Um, political pressure on member states um, grew. Um, You know, we've had for, again, over 10 years, a situation of deadlock between the member states um, who didn't agree. I mean, all of this is due to the fact that there is a political disagreement between member states as to how to handle these situations. Um, And our served um, the purpose of the uh, political declarations and then the um, termination treaty that not everyone signed up to. Um, but those that didn't sign up to were then, obviously, or are still um, pressurized by the European Commission um, in infringement proceedings. And Ahmea helps the Commission to say, well, the fact that you're not terminating your intra ubits is a violation of EU law um, because the uh, Court of Justice said so. Court of Justice said that there is a true incont- incompatibility between your um, treaties or at least certain of, its, of their provisions and EU law. And so you have to um, you have to terminate. And so I think um, something similar could happen um, in the case of the um, Energy Charter Treaty. Um, And and as you probably know, I think there's also been some discussion on this as to whether um, um, the EU member states that are signatories to the um, um, Energy Charter Treaty. We we know that Italy um, withdrew from the treaty with effect of 1st of January 2016, although it's still bound by the um, survival clause. Um, but so the um, other EU member states who are signatories, um, to what extent can they um, ratify or, or come to a separate agreement um, just as amongst themselves um, to say that they disapply the ECT in intra-EU disputes? But I think, I mean, it's it's again it's a personal reading of both the Vienna Convention and of the Energy Charter Treaty, but I think both confirm that you know it's it's perfectly within, it's both lawful. And if there is enough, you know, political incentive or political pressure to do so, um, then then they can do that. So that that might be the way um, um, to to go. And this is, I think, um, what what can be expected.
1: I have a, a question because we've been talking about the fact that it's the ruling on intra EU is written. Uh And and so, is it possible then that the European Court of Justice rules again on that question with respect to an intra-EU dispute? And if it is, how likely is it that it moves away from what
4: it said in Comstrich? That's a good question, actually. Um, If it were any other different situation, I might say perhaps it wouldn't. But I think this one is sufficiently important um, for the court to rule on this issue again in Athena Investments, and then there's this opinion from Belgium that was requested in December of last year, which is arguably on the um, intrigue applicability of the modernized ECT once it is modernized, but given that Article 26 isn't really going to um, be affected by the modernization, you could could read that um, request for opinion as, as a request for the opinion on the current intra eu applicability of the ECT. Um, So I think um, the the court will use all of the um, opportunities that it is given to confirm, affirm, and perhaps, or hopefully um, better explain um, the reasons for for its finding. I I don't think it will exercise any judicial restraint um, in Mm -hmm. the matters, and I certainly don't think um, it will step back from, um, you know, from, from what it's found. Sometimes sometimes the court of justice does change its mind. Um, but when that happens, I think there's at least 10 years or several decades um, mm-hmm. between the first judgment and then the um, revised position on a certain matter of law. And here, um, you know, the, the composition of the court won't change and, um, and there should be uh, probably decisions um, within the next one or two years on these other matters in these other matters so I think um, if anything the court will just confirm and I think it will have to confirm um, its findings made in Comstroy because again um, given that the case is is a case that really didn't lend itself for 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 such statements by the court of justice I think the court will have to um, reaffirm um, its um, its findings in the in in, in the proper context um, to to give more um, legal and political weight to um, um, to its to these findings.
0: To, to circle back, veronica and perhaps uh, to to tie up a bit. I'm I'm interested in your views on the question that was asked, because we now we understandably get tangled up in the whole intra EU discussion. But, but even that notwithstanding, we also have now a pronouncement from the ECJ on a key provision of the ECT, one that has been in contention in many disputes, i.e. the scope of investment, and more specifically, whether commercial transactions are covered by the ECT definition of investment. Do you think that is something that will similarly not be uh, important, relied upon, discussed in, in arbitral jurisprudence? Or is is the, the judgment in this sense sort of a, a contribution that will have more far-reaching consequences perhaps than the, the sort of long-shot ruling on the intra-EU applicability of the ECT more generally?
4: I think that too is a very interesting question. And um, I'd also be interested in you, your views because... Um, what I was wondering uh, earlier today is whether or not, whatever the um, Court of Justice said on the definition of investment in Comstroy, is it all relevant even to Comstroy? <laughs> um, because the court repeats again and again how this is not an EU law dispute and 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 how. Um, whatever the court can say, um, as regards the interpretation of EU law and hence the ECT as EU law, um, right? Because the court interprets the ECT as EU law is actually irrelevant to the present dispute, which is not an intra-EU dispute. Um, So I'm not even sure that whatever finding it made in response to the Court of Appeals questions is relevant to the matter before the Court of Appeal of Paris. Um, We'll have to see what the Court of Appeal will do with this judgment and, and how far um, it will, you know, even ap- apply the definition that it received from the Court of Justice um, to the matter at hand and then on that basis, um, annul um, the um, arbitral award. Um, I, I think there, um, and I'm sure you heard that there, there are a number of um, voices in, in, in France who, who now call on the Court of Appeal to, to try and, um, move away from what the court did and the definition the court gave just to um, to save Paris as a um, place of arbitration. <laughs> um, but so the def- definitions, I mean, it's, you know, um, what the court itself did on looking at um, the um, definition of the ECT and then the um, specific um, contract claims or the, um, you know, the assigned um, claims in this case... Um, doesn't strike one as a very detailed legal analysis. Um, I don't think it's...
0: Um... And it's, it's also completely devoid, at least from my reading, of, of any Vienna convention, uh, like traditional international law principles of treaty interpretation. They, they read it, it seems, as an EU law instrument, which I would guess renders it less relevant for the average of international law investment arbitration practitioner because it's not structured or worded, like the type of interpretation that we are used to relying on in our universe, basically.
4: Yeah, absolutely, fully agree. So um, yeah, no, um, no. Um, I'd be surprised, I'd be surprised if anyone were to pick this up. I mean, obviously, um, you know, respondent states will pick it up, but um, I don't think it will have much weight with um, arbitral tribunals.
1: Are we going to have a declaration on the consequences of ComStroy by the member states
4: soon? That that's what I'm expecting, or even if there is no declaration, um, I'm expecting, um, and perhaps I'm totally wrong with this, but I'm I'm expecting um, the, the the pressure from the Commission to, to mount further for um, some sort of a an amendment agreement to be signed um, between the EU and the EU member states to, to alter or rather to disapply um, the ECT in the um, intra-EU relations. I don't know whether there'll be a need for a declaration. Um, it might be an intermediary step, um, but um, but but even if there is one, I think we we, we we now know that it will again just be a majority declaration because not all of the um, member states seem to agree um, that this is the direction to go. Um, it's,
0: it's our home states, no? As it happens, Veronica, it's, it's Hungary and Sweden uh, primarily and also Finland. <laughs> exactly,
4: Finland a bit. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and I don't know about Sweden, but, but you know, Hungary um, um, has finally um, a homegrown investor that is strong enough to um, invest regionally and, and beyond um, and more. That's the um, Hungarian oil and gas company, um, obviously cool. is involved in a um, in a pending exit um, proceeding against Croatia. So. Um, I think Hungary will um, fight until the end um, to, to try and either stay out of the, um, this application of the ECT um, as long as it can, because I'm sure it will um, you know, have to face an infringement proceeding by the European Commission um, or, or you know, to, to delay that as, um, as long as possible. And um, certainly at least under, until the, um, the award is issued in that case.
3: Um,
0: we, we said initially that we, well, maybe that was actually off mic, that we had hoped to be confused, but at a higher level at the end of our with you. And I feel like we are approaching that territory. <laughs> and there's also a, a pretty good wrap up to be to be said about the the fact that we don't know much right now because th- there will be developments following this and reactions. I haven't seen that many reactions from beyond the, the typical. Uh, Disgruntled arbitration practitioner, but I'm sure that things are being prepared within foreign ministries and the EU bureaucracy as we speak.
4: Um, possibly, I mean, I don't have any, um, you know, insider knowledge either, but um, we all know that the modernization process is ongoing, and and I think criticism against the Energy Charter Treaty is growing in the European Union, whether it's because it's not green enough or because it allows, um, you know, rich. Um, dirty oil companies to challenge um measures taken in the public interest or because of its intra-EU application um I think these are difficult days for the energy charter treaty and um um and I I'm expecting that there are discussions um occurring in the um in the background and have been seriously for for quite some time I mean we've um seen and, and heard that, um you know, the commission really in recent years. Um, in, so in the beginning, the commission was focusing on um, intra-UBIT disputes, um, like Brian and I um, well know. And then I know you guys also um, um, have had your dealings with the European Commission. And then in recent years, it actually stepped back until ARMEA happened. And then with ahmea it went back into the intra-UBIT um, sphere. But um, just before ARMEA, it had stepped Back from intra-UBITs and was really focusing its efforts on energy charter treaty um, disputes to say, well, it's inapplicable because there is an implicit disconnection clause and there is this and that, and um, the award is unenforceable, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so I think it's it's not with Comstroy that um, negotiations in the background will start. I think they just gain new momentum or or you know um, further strength um, to um to try and bring the member states to the table um, to do something about the entry applicability of the um, ECT.
0: We might have reason to, to bring you back on the arbitration station again. And I, I hope so, because this has been great. And I dare say, without being too mean to my, my co-host, maybe the, the best EU investment arbitration segment in the history of the podcast so far.
4: Thank you. Thank you, Joel. Um, it was a pleasure to to be here. And yes, by all means, I mean, there'll be um, much, much more to discuss. Thank, Thank you so much. so much. Thank you, guys.
0: All right, I will run through a number of post-award remedies that are not set aside or enforcement, as I said. And because Sadia made a full out of me and a little bit out of Brian with a Dubai segment quizzing us, it is again quiz time on Arbitration Station. And I know that you guys probably don't have any kind of manuscript the way I do, so I'm gonna caught you and catch you off guard now. Right. Can you can you name any post award remedy that isn't set aside or enforcement? Like what can you apply for after an award has been rendered that isn't a set aside or an enforcement? Oh correction. Yes, I've done one of those. Um, There are there are three three and a half that I'll go through today. They're mm -hmm. all kind of similar, so I think you're forgiven if you're not (laughs) able to come up with any more than correction. Um, Nope. Okay. Okay.
2: (laughs) Great quiz game. (laughs) Yeah.
0: (laughs) It's in addition to correction, you can apply for an interpretation. Oh, I was going to say
1: clarification
0: okay yeah mm-hmm. you can also apply for a supplementation mm-hmm. and I'll explain the differences between these momentarily and then finally I'm also going to talk just a little bit about remanding the case back to the tribunal
3: mm-hmm.
0: for for a, a review which is in some, something that is available sometimes if you're in court there's been a set aside you can also ask the court to remand the case back to the uh, tribunal these all have something to do with the phrase functus officio which i think is one of the like things that should be in any dispute lawyers toolbox that's a phrase used in many jurisdictions to mean that once the tribunal has issued its final award generally speaking it may not revise it its mandate is over and this is for a number of, of reasons for example a Uh, there's a defining characteristic of of the arbitral process in that the selection of arbitrators to resolve a particular dispute is there as opposed to relying on a standing tribunal to resolve all disputes between the parties so everyone packs up and goes home when the arbitration is over arbitration is ad hoc and not in the like non-institutional sense but in the sense that it is established for one case and then it's over when the case is over and b parties, or at least reasonable parties, intend to obtain an expeditious and final resolution of their disputes. Uh, So continuing consideration and reconsideration by the arbitrators of of the party's claim would be sort of an enemy to this idea of a final resolution that's, you know, it's a one-stop shop as we often say in the world of arbitration. And C. Arbitrators are private persons. They don't have the, the training of a national judiciary. They are not subject to the same kind of rules. And that raises particular concerns about their continuing power to make largely unreviewable decisions on private parties' rights, and there's a risk of abuse of authority, etc., etc., that is different from when we have a standing court that is regulated by domestic law. (laughs) The Anzitral model law that we often take as a starting point for our discussions provides in Article 32 that the arbitral proceedings are terminated by the final award or by an order of the tribunal to that effect and that the mandate of the arbitral tribunal terminates with the termination of the arbitral proceedings. This is what we typically mean when we say that the tribunal is functus officio. This general provision, though, is subject to a number of specific and carefully defined exceptions. And those are the ones that we almost got right in, in the quiz part correction, interpretation, uh, additional awards, uh, or maybe that you can remand it back. This general approach that the mandate of the tribunal is terminated with the award or an order, but there are a few exceptions. That approach is followed in model law jurisdictions and also in most non-model law jurisdictions. However, in Switzerland, the US and the UK to mention, a number of popular arbitral jurisdictions, there is no direct provision for termination of a tribunal's mandate upon the issuance of a final award. But in practice it is similar, at least I think we can say that for the UK or for England really it is, because under common law and court practice it is recognized that the tribunal's mandate is uh, distinct, no, Jesus, English as second language. (laughs) Extinguished is the word I'm looking for upon the issuance of a final award. And in the U.S., and here I recognize that I am absolutely not a U.S. lawyer. I'm barely any kind of lawyer. Uh, but my impression is that the FA, the Federal Arbitration Act, does not express... FAAA Yeah, exactly. I think a long <laughs> time ago we said you should pronounce it like, like the Vietnamese soup. Pho.
1: Like pho? Oh, okay. Yeah,
2: pho, maybe, pho. Okay, pho, <laughs> <Sorry.
1: laughs> pho. Is it pho? I always thought it was pho. Okay, never mind.
2: Mm, I yeah. don't
1: know. No, I'm not <laughs> Vietnamese. I have no idea.
2: Well, it's pho. definitely sa.
0: <laughs> we're, we're trying. This has been The Pronunciation Station, episode 259. <clears throat> Anywho, the Federal Arbitration Act provides for the judicial confirmation of awards, subject to limited ground for vacature, judicial correction or judicial modification of the, the award. So it seems to me at least that the Federal Arbitration Act in essence leaves the fulfillment of the arbitrator's mandate after making the award entirely to judicial rather than to arbitral decisions. Should we move to correction of awards which i think is the the biggest category here and the one that brian got right yes Mm -hmm. this mechanism is intended to correct obvious mistakes or omissions in awards and the purpose of course is to avoid the frankly unacceptable possibility of having a party find itself bound by an award mistakenly ordering relief that the arbitrators did not intend to award and this issue of corrections of awards is dealt with primarily by national arbitration legislation and also in arbitration rules. And I think it's fair to say that most modern arbitration statutes permit the correction of awards typically by the arbitrators rather than by a national court, with a US exception here that I just mentioned. And this is the case even when the parties have not expressly agreed to that authority. And I think the general approach, and this is my uh, my reading of the, uh, the international arbitration room is that we accept corrections as a necessary evil, tolerated maybe even better, but it's not encouraged and it's very narrowly regulated.
2: Well, I, and if I, were- I, mean, can, I mean, if someone completely puts in the wrong head of claim or damages calculation or, you know, something that obvious, I think that... That's fine. But I think you're right in saying that a lot of people try to use a small issue to open the door to completely re-arbitrate like an entire merits claim. So I think so.
0: Maybe we can talk to this after I run through the the different examples of post-award remedies. But I am interested in your take on how common this is, because Mm -hmm. I think it's for me, at least it's rare to hear of really any of these uh, mechanisms being relied upon. But oh, if we just briefly return to the the correction, just to see what we're dealing with, under the Model Law Article 33, it is said that within 30 days of receipt of the award, a party may quote request the arbitral tribunal to correct in the award any errors in computation, any clerical or typographical errors, or any errors of similar nature. And it is of course maybe the similar nature window that Brian mentions, mm-hmm. where you could try to shoehorn mm-hmm. other things than just computational errors or clerical errors. And, and then the tribunal is required, if it considers that uh, the, the application is well-founded, to make the correction within 30 days of receipt of the request. The tribunal can also make corrections to its award on its own initiative within the same time limit, i.e. 30 days of the parties receiving the award. And examples of errors that I think are accepted as meriting corrections would be failures to include one or a number of categories of damages which have been found payable in the dispositive section of the award when this was clearly intended. Mm-hmm. Uh, we also have errors in the tribunal's reasoning in the body of its awards. They are not generally subject to correction. Uh, and the Article 33 procedure in the, in the model law Cannot be used to correct errors on judgment, whether of law or of fact. What do you think happens if the tribunal refuses say that the one party says this is an obvious mistake you need to be corrected for the award to make sense, and the tribunal says no. what do you do? Your creative lawyers
1: well, not I mean unless you can link it to you know a, a grounds for set aside. I don't know right. what else you could do, right That's so. I guess that's what a creative lawyer would do is argue set aside on the basis of the grounds for set aside. Mm.
0: I think so. Yeah. I think you're, you're right. I think that's the only, uh, in most cases, the only realistic possibility for any kind of relief. You can do that on the grounds that the tribunal did not comply with the terms of the party's agreement to arbitrate mm-hmm. or acted ultra petita or infra petita, depending on mm-hmm. the circumstances
2: or you can keep going down the line with all of these post award award requests to build your case for the set-aside. Like, okay, you're not gonna correct it? Why don't you interpret what you <laughs> yeah. said here? Yeah. Uh,
1: it's, yeah. Um, the, yeah, sorry, go ahead, Go ahead, Jal, I didn't wanna interrupt. I was just thinking- No, 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 no. Something that often happens, at least I've seen it happen multiple times, is a mistake in the calculation of the damages um, which includes um, either, like you mentioned, um, a forgetting uh, part of it or um, double counting. Double mm-hmm. counting happens often. And it happens. It happens more often than you would think. So when you get an award, you know, we all rush to the last decision, <laughs> to the last page, sorry, <laughs> to look. But you actually have to read, like, very carefully. Cause, um, mm.
0: that, I think this is interesting. and uh, I'm curious to hear because I'm, of course, in my capacity as tribunal secretary, typically on the award drafting side of things. I've always wondered exactly how carefully do parties read the award? Is it, oh, we won or we lost. And then you read a little bit more to confirm, or is it like side checking, uh, recounting the
2: damages, et cetera? Yeah. As if it were a submission.
1: Yeah. I would say same thing. I mean, especially the damages uh, part. Um, I mean, all of it, to be honest, but you know, you, you do things in priority. Um, and I, and I think like, like you say, you have a set deadline, uh, to make those applications. So you have to be very
3: quick. Um,
0: so when you get the award, the clock starts ticking, then it's really like careful
2: reading, double checking everything time. And the client wants to know what happened. I mean, they're Mm -hmm. only going to read and understand the last page. And so you kind of have to have a debrief with them and be like, this is how they got to their conclusions. And this is what they thought. And this is why the answer came out. It is. And that the number came out as it did. Mm-hmm. um so you have to really understand back and forth
1: one thing that the clients often don't understand is, is exactly what you mentioned is the infra petita and ultra petita arguments uh, it's you can't really ask um it's it's a tough one right i mean it's it, sometimes they they look at the reasoning of the tribunal they're like oh they haven't addressed this argument so it's uh you know, it's infra petita because they haven't looked at this claim, but in fact they have. It's just that they haven't included it in the right. reasoning. And, and I'm sure, Jill, you're nodding. I'm sure you're you're familiar with this because you're on the other side of the of the you know of the table, uh, right? You know, at, not writing, but at least you know you're looking at the at the draft uh, award. Um, and that that's a that's a tough discussion to have. Uh, with with the client on, you know, how do you, you know, do you actually ask for a clarification? Do you ask for a correction? Do you make a set aside application? Do you do nothing? Uh, yeah.
0: Moving back to to corrections, we also of course have institutional rules, and I should say for the record that well, if we're talking about arbitration legislation, the rules on on how and when you you can apply for correction they really differ. With again, the U.S. I think being a major exception because they're. It is a US court rather than a tribunal that, that can um, correct the award but if we move to institutional rules which of course tend to sort of supersede the, the more general rules and arbitration rules if you have an arbitration governed by one of the more established arbitration institution rules um, I think, it's fair to say that all leading rules address this subject specifically. And the ICC rules is a good example, uh, partly because they, as we know, have their scrutiny process, so that the process there begins before an award is finalized, when the ICC court, assisted by the Secretariat, scrutinizes uh, the award. I've, I have a few other examples of errors which may be corrected under this ICC procedure, uh, all of them are like things that keep Me up at night when I review awards in my capacity as secretary. <laughs> do
1: you go the through the fa- procedural checklist? Sorry, is that what you do? You just no,
0: yeah. For ICC awards, I haven't, it's been a long time since I was in a case uh, where an ICC award was rendered, but yes, they have a procedural checklist which you have to go through uh, mm-hmm. because that's something you know that the court will look at and it, it's all the various forms and what has to be in there and in, in what order and so. But these are all specific examples of things that have been corrected. One is the failure to insert the word "not" before something, so that it sounds like you're saying the opposite of what you're trying to say. For example, in the dispositive section. Oh, <laughs> big no. <number, laughs> That's a clerical error. Yeah. The use of a period instead of a comma in order to separate numbers. For example, you know when you write out hundreds and thousands or mm-hmm. millions, etc. Mm-hmm. This is also a problem because different cultures do this differently. When do you use a comma? When do you use a period to you know yeah. avoid confusion with the decimal point, etc. And costs seem to be a common thing. So the decision for each party to bear 50% of the cost of arbitration, for example, while ordering the respondent to pay an amount that was equal to 100% of those costs and the math just doesn't add up. Mm. Mm-hmm. We then have the interpretation of awards, which generally follows the same procedure as their correction, but there's the difference between the two is that in contrast to a correction in interpretation or clarification, I think you said, Sadia, it's basically the same thing, uh, does not alter the statements or calculations, but instead it's more clearly an explanation of what those those, those statements were intended to mean. I don't think I've ever seen this in practice. It is extremely rare, I think. But basically, you're asking the tribunal to explain itself, not by changing an error in the award, but explaining what they meant with something they wrote in the award. And uh, this seems, of course, more more limited compared to corrections. Uh, I think it's fair to say.
1: Mm -hmm. Definitely. At least that's my experience. I don't know, Brian. Have you seen any?
2: Yeah, it's like the sore loser application. (laughs) It's like, you lost, but tell me why again, and don't make it hurt as bad. why.
3: Yeah. Yeah.
2: I haven't seen one of those in practice. I've only seen corrections a few times. I mean, the argument, if you're the party, is
0: that the tribunal uh, that has rendered an ambiguous award, and thus not necessarily a fully enforceable award, has not really completely performed its mandate and has to go back and do so by explaining itself. I don't think this is something that is popular among arbitrators, generally speaking, to get this back. No, no, definitely not. Then we have another category that's the supplementation of award. Uh, and that is when something was just simply omitted from the tribunal's decision or award. Uh, the model law, for example, allows requests for an additional award, unless otherwise agreed by the parties. and that's similar in many other national rules and institutional rules. I think the ICC was actually, if not the last, but but among the last major institutions to add this supplementation mechanism in, in their most recent version of of their rules in, in uh, this year, twenty twenty one. Then we have the remission thing that I also just have to mention because there there are national laws and. Uh, the, the law of Sweden, where I'm from, is, is an example of this where you can remit an arbitral award back to the tribunal after you've filed an application to annul the award. Uh, so basically this permits a court that has an annulment application before it to give the arbitrators an opportunity to take further steps or dis- decisions, which and the purpose, the, the only reason we do this, it's, it's that one specific thing or a few specific things can be identified which if remedied might render the annulment application unnecessary or inappropriate. So rather than going through a whole set-aside, you can give it back to the tribunal and then they can. The same tribunal. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Assuming they are available and alive.
2: Mm -hmm. (laughs) Oh dear. (laughs)
0: A question for you guys, because this is something that actually uh, arose in a case where I was secretary. So assume that the tribunal has rendered its award, thereby closing the procedure. They've sent their invoices to the administering institution or to the parties, as the case may be, if there is no institution. The arbitraries have been paid. And then 29 days after the award has been rendered, one party applies for correction or, or clarification. Are the tribunal members entitled to remuneration to deal with its application? So they thought they were done, everything is over. Most people in this business think that the only thing that can happen now is a set aside or enforcement, which is obviously beyond something that the arbitrators can control. They've moved on with their life, and then there comes an application that they also have to address within 30 days. And you know they are paid hourly. Are they paid for this work? What do you think as the parties
1: i would say yes i mean if it's uh if the application is made is timely uh and within the applicable rules then yes it's part of the you know mission of the tribunal so why wouldn't we pay for them to look at that
2: if they because they gave a faulty award at the beginning and now you're basically they're going to get more money to correct what they've done wrong and as a service provider you can get that as like you know you've actually my my roof is still leaking so can you please properly <laughs> clog it up but,
1: but. They, what if they look at it and it's fine
2: well th- th- this is exactly to your yeah. point which is like <laughs> now you just have some like karen being like oh this is a warrant, yeah, Karen. A... <laughs> and then you subject these people to another year of like proceedings unpaid so I,
0: I'm yeah. so happy. You guys are really acting as devil's advocates, both of you, like very <laughs> clearly, clearly uh, arguing for for one hypothetical position and then the other. And the answer is that that I don't think there is one clear rule here, and both of your positions are acceptable. Under the answer to arbitration rules, there is actually a clear provision that no additional fees may be charged by a tribunal for interpretation or correction or. Uh, oh my gosh! Really? Oh, okay. Yeah. Right.
3: Okay.
1: And I think I did that's.
0: not know that. Mm. No, same. Nor did I when this happened to a tribunal where I was uh, the secretary. And I think the tribunal members were also a little bit surprised because we, we had to look into this uh, because it happened so rarely. And there are obviously good arguments, as you highlighted, for both positions. By contrast, under the ICC rules, the court may fix uh, an advance mm-hmm. to cover additional fees and expenses. Uh, so it is possible under the ICC rules to actually pay the tribunal uh, for post-award work that they may have to do. But it of course also has to do with the general remuneration model of the arbitrators paid hourly or based on uh, a holistic determination of the case, uh, such as under the ICC rules.
1: Holistic, (laughs) I like that
0: word. <laughs> I, I think it's you know we usually say ad valorem. It's based on ad valorem, which sounds like it is only the the amount in dispute. but I don't think that's fair. I think holistic sounds better. I'm sure the ICC mm-hmm. and the SCC and the other institutions that use this will be happy with my use of the word holistic because it's n- <laughs> it's not only the amount in dispute. It's also how complicated did the procedure turn out to be, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Yeah. I should also say, however, that uh, just because you render the award, the case isn't over. Typically, we have this 30-day period under most rules and law, and it, that 30-day period is not just to file set aside, it is also for these other remedies. So, as, as uh, a final word to all the participants in, in arbitrations, remember that just because the award is rendered, that doesn't mean that uh, the game is over. Uh, there may be other things coming. Beyond the, first, the
1: opposite, <laughs> <laughs> like it's like Yukos, it was actually the beginning, you know, when the award was <laughs> <So> under. <true. laughs> Same for Acme, you know. I guess. So. Yeah. Good point.
0: Uh, yeah. All right, that was it.
1: Thank you, Jill. That's really great. Thank you.
0: To cite yourself or not to cite yourself, will we be able to answer this question in the definitive with a yes or no? or Will we uh, do the cop-out and say that it depends? (laughs) (laughs) Cop-out. I've been thinking about this a lot in the world of investment arbitration, where you generally know who has written awards. You at least know what the tribunal was like and generally speaking you can assume that the chair was the most influential one that's not always the case but that is I think for better of worse, a common assumption that the chair sort of was holding the pen more than the co-arbitrators although it's obviously a very collaborative process so you can guess who was uh, a big part of drafting award x If it's a dissenting opinion, it's signed by the individual arbitrator and you can be convinced Mm -hmm. that that arbitrator wrote dissenting opinion X or separate opinion or whatever it may be. Of course, as we know and have talked about in different iterations, arbitrators also appear in other capacities uh, as themselves. Some of them are academics. They write books and articles and they give keynote speeches and whatnot. And smart counsel, as we've talked about, might try to rely on things that the arbitrators in question have said in other contexts as part of their advocacy. But this that we're talking about now is in what context you can rely on on your own writings or speeches in the past. And if it's a little bit of a faux pas or if it's on, on the contrary, actually something that just strengthens your argument because it shows that you are consistent in your... Beliefs.
2: And the authority on... Mm-hmm. That issue. How, how do you approach this? I,
0: I don't think that I, either of us is really uh, at the stage of our career where we can rely on a big body of past work in our present work. But how do you think about this? Would you be comfortable, like say that you had published an article in a journal, on a pertinent issue for your case, would you be a little embarrassed to put your own article in, in a footnote in a submission, for
2: example?
1: I would not be embarrassed, no.
2: <laughs> yes, Sonia! <laughs> that comes
1: from the gut.
2: No, I mean, people
1: do it all the time. Yeah. And, uh, and, and, you know, it's, it's like everything. It, it, how much value does it have? You know, people are quick in finding that it's your own article, right? So mm-hmm. um, if it's an article, you've done research for it, there's you know, data that supports your argument. It's not just, a
0: but I, I'm sure you, you, you just like me have seen, maybe not so much in, in the submission context, but in other when you read articles, you've seen auth- authors cite themselves very frequently oh, like yeah. when you, when the footnotes are like 45% your own writings, I tend to think, uh, oh, wait a minute. Mm-hmm. Unless it's in a, like a very, very specific sub-branch of a sub-branch of an issue where only one or two people have actually written about it. It feels a little, I don't know, lazy.
1: But that's the thing, like it's it's the probative value, right? I mean, that's why you asked if there was an embarrassment. And in, in, it's like, if you refer to a, an exhibit and you know its probative value is not really great, you're, you're, you're still... It's, it's your call. Are you going to refer to it or not refer to it? And then you let the arbitrators decide or the parties decide you know, what, what value it has. But one one question to respond to your question, Joe, <laughs> because you're talking in the world of investment arbitration. So your scenario is an arbitrator, the chair, is referring to its own work, whether an article or a previous award, right? Where right. it was a chair. Um, I think the situation might be different if Either of the parties have also referred to that as a, you know, as a, as a legal exhibit in the proceedings versus one where neither of the parties had referred to it. And then the chair goes and and refers to a previous award. That's
0: true. It also touches on the Eura Novit Curia or Mm -hmm. similar doctrines. Like, is that even something that you're supposed to be doing? But I think in most cases we can assume with good lawyers in investment arbitration, at least there will be things on the record, if it's if it's a repeat player that, that that's chairing the case or the courtiers, for that matter too. Yeah,
2: as a flattery to the decision maker. Just saying, like you said this, or opposing counsel, you even cite them sometimes in order to show that they're they, they're on your side in the publication sphere. Oh
1: yeah, have you guys not? Have you done this? I, we've done this before. Oh, all it's the fun. time.
2: All the yeah, time.
1: it is really fun. Like as Professor Da, da, da has said, and he's like mm-hmm. opposite counsel,
2: <laughs> and you
1: look him in the eyes when you're saying that.
2: <laughs> it happened with Kai all the time because he is, you know, very heavy in that academia world as well, and so it was always like as this, as Professor Doctor Hovair wrote, and you're we like. <laughs>
1: that's you (laughs) yeah
2: I think yeah as counsel that advocacy side can really come up in, in multiple ways but I have worked with other people where they specifically replace citations that say the exact same thing with a something from their publication, even though you've found another publication. And so it's like there, the probative value is completely irrelevant. Now it's yeah. now you're just grandstanding yeah. and trust trying to show. But as Sadi, your first answer to, to in the conversation was, I would I would do it too. You don't want your article to to go into nothingness, and you don't want your... You, you could also, of course, make the argument
0: that it's it's uh, it bolsters your authority as the advocate. Like, right. I know what I'm talking about. Yeah, exactly. I, that's not an argument for why you should exclude other sources as well. Maybe keep them all in, in the footnote to support your proposition. But the fact that you've said similar things in the past means you can speak with a different kind of voice on this issue today in your submission or article or whatever it is.
2: And that it's not just empty advocacy. It's actually grounded in some mm-hmm. you know research that you've even before you had to advocate for your client you you found this position but unless uh, you
1: keep quoting yourself
2: <laughs> so <yeah>.
0: the article <laughs> in refers
1: the, to your own uh, research to it's like inception
0: <laughs>
3: yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah, but this is uh, this is a good point it hasn't maybe not so much to do with with self-citation but i think in other contexts we did discuss this that it happens a lot in our world that you get this like circle of, of uh, citations so that a source ultimately ends up being the definitive one. We have that with Scheuer on the Ixid Convention and, and Bourne's treatise on Commercial Arbitration that it's, it's so often cited that it becomes like the, the gospel eventually because it's been cited by so many people in so many different contexts and what is actually being cited in Scheuer or in Bourne might be something that refers to something that either of them wrote before. We have other examples but, but Scheuer and Born come to mind. Right yeah, away.
1: Sure. It's definitely Bible,
3: I'd say. Yeah,
0: and then it's you know, and I, I, I talked about this because there's research on this in investment arbitration, how certain things become established truths, like notions of that go back to the nineteen sixties. And if you if you follow the whole chain back from Schoyer to Scheuer referring to his own article from the eighties to what the article actually says about the exit preparatory works, you see that it it's maybe a bit more tenuous than it would seem today when we just use a footnote to the latest publication. And that, I think, if we're tying it back uh, to self-citation, is interesting because we have this power structure as well, which is sort of re-emphasized when the big dragons uh, are being cited by themselves or by others. And we had a discussion on on Jimid uh the the, the parts where we could find. I also have a memory there were more discussions but have not researched properly, but there's an, a gender imbalance in self citations. Mm-hmm. I think uh, research shows not specifically for arbitration, I think, but in general in law, the people who cite themselves tend to be well the the usual suspects, the traditional power players, the the white established men who are by now probably in their 70s, they do this much more than uh, the,
2: the Saudis of the world. <laughs> I think this goes, I mean, that kind of filters into this cognitive diversity that we talked about in previous episodes. And I think there is part of advocacy and part of this job, which should focus on diversity of sources and diversity of input. And if you're just really propagandizing your own views and values and recreating arguments and redrafting actual texts, in submissions and in awards, in order to be lazy or in order to just take a stand so that you're the authority. I don't. I think that. I mean, if I'm going to be a bit idealistic in how we should move forward, it would be that we should, you know, kind of embrace the discussion and the pushback and not just really like force feed your analysis on a specific issue until it's dead and you self cite until you're dead so I think like (laughs) I think I mean I am this obviously is idealistic and if you see my name in a footnote in one of my works then I told you so but it's I think we should really embrace the cognitive diversity of you know how we're really analyzing this And, and and as advocates you should find other sources yes um so that you can you know find more nuanced approaches to some of these issues instead of just like conclusory statements from things that have been said before can i ask you as as advocates uh, what is your impression of how
0: or your best guess how carefully arbitrators think about this when they draft awards and to use an extreme example uh, that's a parallel think of the u.s supreme court where obviously the judges are permanent and everyone including their colleagues know exactly more or less which way they're going to come down on any given issue because there's so much published and they are sort of vocal with, with their views during hearings and then published judgments. So there's a strategy when you're drafting as a judge on the US Supreme Court, you have to you know draft it narrowly or not narrowly, depending on the context, in order to get as many other judges on board as possible. And there are strategies for like the sort of centrist judges to try to draft in a way so that they can get people on both sides to join them, because you can expect what people on both sides will need in the award in order to join based on their previous writings. To what extent do you think that same dynamic applies in, I guess, investment treaty arbitration where there are so many awards out there and if you have the time, like the parties sometimes do when they appoint arbitrators, you try to research what has this arbitrator written before or said before, do you think this is something that arbitrators when they draft think about, particularly maybe chair people uh, on, on tribunals? Do they research themselves, try to like gauge where do you think, where do I think the co-arbitrators are on this based on their previous awards, or is it more just facts, law, submissions? How much do you think the sort of citation game and the flattery is part of tribunal dynamics?
2: I mean, you probably know this better than than me, but, I, you know, in my... Small time in deliberation rooms, the tribunal gets together and kind of agrees on the main points and agrees on the main conclusions, and then the chair kind of takes that forward and gets to those conclusions. So they don't really, it's not, I, I wouldn't like to be able to analogize it to the Supreme Court in the sense that someone is drafting and sent, submitting mm-hmm. a draft and be like, I hope you agree. Um, and also, they have clerks that are allowed to draft. So <laughs> it's, a, it's a bit different than secretaries that can't. But I, I, I think you may know better than me, but I I venture to say that people are way too busy to to be creative and advocate in their drafting of awards.
1: I think it depends. So sorry for, I know you don't like that answer. But <laughs> which kind of arbitrator you are, like what, what level of seniority you are, mm. how how big of a star you are in the arbitration yeah.
0: world, how big speak. of a track record you have. I guess. Yeah,
1: exactly. Like. I don't want us to, to cite any names, but let's, let's cite a name. Okay. Uh, does Gary Bourne need to cite to himself? You know, everyone's citing him anyways, um, on a particular but, issue. but maybe,
0: maybe an arbitrator who's on a tribunal with Gary Bourne might make it easier to get Gary Bourne on their side by like in the first draft of the award. By referring Gary to Bourne it. Footnotes, yeah.
1: Yeah. That's, that's a good point.
0: And I think I mean, without, again, naming hmm. any names or giving uh, something away that I don't really have access to, I, I know I've seen research. There's obviously, as we've talked about, a lot of like data and language-driven research on published arbitral awards. It happens a lot that arbitrators, and you can, you can see this, more or less copy-paste certain sections from either their own previous awards or awards that they know have been written by co-arbitrators, mm-hmm. partly mm-hmm. because the same things arise over and over again, and
3: I think that's a Be careful
1: thing when you say that, right? Is that is there a precedent in our investment arbitration? is in every <laughs> case ad hoc and specific? Um...
0: <laughs> right. I, I, I think it's only fair, though, to do that as long as you uh, put a footnote. Obviously, yeah, uh, yeah if, you know, if, it, if it's something yes. that is, if regardless of the more theoretical discussion of doctrine of precedent, if there's something that has already been addressed and it has been addressed by a tribunal whose award is on the record, I think it's fair game that even if people on that tribunal is now on the new tribunal. I think they can quote that, rely on that, maybe even copy paste certain sections as long as they are transparent with it.
2: Especially if it's like a clarification of a rule that's you know not taking it too narrowly or, or too broadly. And it's just like getting you to the actual meat of the issue. I, I don't see any issue with that as long as it's not mm-hmm. taking one side. Yeah.
1: But again, to answer your question, uh, Jules, I think Please. if they don't... Uh, think about those things. Maybe they should. I'm sure they they do. I don't have any uh, hardcore evidence to say that they do, but um, we're in a world where repeat appointments happen. Uh, you know, arbitrators are appointed by the parties. It's a bis- it's that's the core difference with Supreme Court uh, of the U S. Like you mentioned, um, so naturally they must worry or or think at least about about how you know they draft. And if they don't, you should. <laughs> we are watching. Also, Everyone's watching.
0: Yeah. I'm also happy to hear that there's some enthusiasm in, in this group for, for self-citation as well. It might be a way to to break or change some, some power dynamics in the field if certain kinds of people started self-citing more and actually um, are more comfortable asserting authority that they, on paper, have because they've already written or spoken about something i think that is something that in the right context when appropriate should be encouraged
1: i i have a, a, a quick anecdote which is not at all related to arbitration but i remember when i was studying a law uh, in france uh, there's a, a, a French uh, public law professor, uh, administrative law, René Chaput, and I remember his, so he was kind of like the sure, you know, his book was every time we would refer to his book and, and he hardly had any footnotes in his own book. And I always wondered, and somebody said to me that they asked him, the question was, they're like, why don't you sit and cite to doctrine? And he responded, la doctrine, c'est moi.
2: Uh, like the states is me (laughs) (laughs) no humility
0: yeah I've had that in like I think that's common maybe that might be a thing for civil law as well when doctrine actually matters so much as a legal source because I've also had professors when I studied in Sweden are literally are the only main authority on a narrow subject i'm thinking of michael bogdan now in in, in lund where i study who um on private international law since the 60s you now he speaks all the languages of the world and he's written all the books and he's a major expert and there are basically no other textbooks on private international law conflict of laws that he hasn't written and he was the, like the old professor in lund and of course when he was lecturing you know <laughs> He, in many ways, was the law because at other universities all over Sweden, it was like what, what Bogdan says is what the law is because it, it's unregulated, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. It's kind of a nice capacity to to be in.
1: Right, yeah, but I, I would say I, I won't be, I wouldn't be happy if I found an, uh, an award with no references at all. And they're well, because we said so. That's how it is. <laughs> We're making the law. You chose us.
2: In, international That's law, it. C'est moi. exactly.
1: Say do, yeah,
2: well, we can use this as a segue to a disclaimer that uh, you can cite us as much as you want in all of your submissions, but don't, t- this is all for conversation. There are disclaimers yeah, exactly. all over the board. and Probative up. value, as Sadia said, rather <laughs> yeah. limited. This is <laughs> for <laughs> discussion <laughs> purposes only and to provoke <laughs> your ears while you're on your commute. <laughs> but happy for you to cite me. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, thank you, guys. Thank you, Joel, for taking the uh, shouldering most of the episode. It was great. Nice My to pleasure. See you guys. thank up. you,
0: Jan, and thank you, Dimitri, for all the work behind the scenes. You can email us at the Station at gmail.com. Or tweet We're also still at on you. Twitter. Yeah, we're gonna to have to wake up the Twitter account now when we're back alive again. At the arb
2: station. Indeed. <laughs> at us. <laughs> Alright, guys.
1: Write to us, we will respond. That's true. <laughs> thank you, Joel. Thank you,
0: Brian.
2: Alright, bye guys. Bye. Bye.